The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. I'd invite you uh, to open your Bibles, if you have them this morning, to the book of 1 Peter. And we're going to be in chapter 4 this morning. Um, We are continuing in our summer series. We have a few weeks left as we wrap up the book. Um, If you are new or don't have a Bible, um, it's near the end of the New Testament. Um, You can also find the text for today in the uh, worship guide that you received when you came this morning. Well, the last, uh, last few years, I've been kind of fascinated by, by learning and reading and hearing interviews with ultra-endurance athletes. Ultra-endurance athletes. Now you're like, what's the difference between that and endurance? Like endurance athletes run marathons. Ultra-endurance athletes run like 100, 200 miles, run 24, 48 hours straight. Endurance athletes ride their bikes for a long ways. Ultra-endurance athletes ride their bikes across the country. Right? It's a totally different kind of breed of athlete. And there's one who I've become kind of fascinated by and, and research and listened to a lot of what she's to- talked about in the interviews. And her name is Courtney Dalwalter. And she's kind of unique in the running community for, se- for several reasons. One, she actually didn't really start racing competitively until she was already into her 30s. Another, she races in basketball shorts and a cotton t-shirt. Not your normal ultra runner endurance you know, apparel. But then she's also unique because she's, by all accounts, one of the best in the world. Not just one of the best women, but it is not uncommon for her to show up to win a race and not just win the women's category, but to beat every pro man who's at the race as well. She's, by all accounts, one of the best ultra-endurance athletes in the world. And I came across an interview that was almost two hours long of her a few months ago. And I was so fascinated because from her perspective, you know, this interview is trying to dive in, like, how can someone do this? What makes her so unique that puts her so far above so many other people? And it's interesting because what it really is, as she was just talking through and sharing, is her mind works differently than ours do. She has an entirely different mindset when it comes to life and to, for her in specific, to exercising. See, it was so fascinating in this interview, she's saying, like, When I race for a long time, what I cannot wait till is that spot when I'm running where everything within me wants to stop. My brain says, this is stupid. You need to stop. She says, I can't wait to get to that point to see how I can push through and respond. Now, for the rest of us, our alarm goes off in the morning and we're like, nope, like hits news. Like, I don't need to work out today, right? And we're like, we avoid that, right? If that comes in front, we're like, oh no, like get away. And her mind is, I can't wait until that comes, right? It's this mindset that is entirely different that separates her from most of her competition. And see, this mindset shift is important for us in all areas of our lives. As Christians, one of the ways of transformed living is it says that Jesus renews and transforms our mind, our way of thinking. And this morning, we're going to see how a shift of mindset for us as Christians will help us when we encounter suffering and trials and hardships of various kinds that will come to us in life. And so we're in 1 Peter chapter 4, starting this morning at verse 1. We're kind of in a few, a few sermons in a row here as Peter highlights suffering, why Christians will suffer, and how we can persevere and honor Jesus through the hardships of our life. And he says this, 1 Peter chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, 
For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The first way to shift our mindset when it comes to suffering as Christians is to know that we will have to choose at times between sin or suffering. To know that we will have to choose at times in our lives, will we sin or will we suffer for following and honoring Jesus? He starts off this section by saying, since therefore, it looks back whenever there's a therefore, you ask, why is that there? What's it there for? It looks back to the the passage immediately preceding it, talking about Jesus came, suffered for sins, and now has victory over all things. And since Jesus suffered in his physical flesh, he says to arm yourselves with this same mindset, with this same way of thinking. Arm yourself is a kind of sounds like is normally used in a military connotation. So as you think of it, when when you go into battle, when people prepare for battle, you don't just walk around, find, oh, you look good. Here's a gun. Go into battle. No, you take them. You prepare. There's preparation. There's training. There's a lot of work to be ready to be equipped for what is ahead of us. And as Christians, this idea is we need to prepare. We need to arm. We need to get ready for the things that we will face in this world. And so arm, prepare ourselves with the mind of Christ, with Jesus's same attitude. It says there at verse one, the last phrase, for whoever has suffered in the flesh, that is in the physical body, has ceased from sin. Now it can kind of look confusing at first. What, what does it mean to, they cease from sin? Does that mean that like, if I suffer, I'm not able to sin anymore? Like, I wish, that would be nice, wouldn't it? Does it mean that if I suffer, then I'm like, that I'm trying to achieve some kind of moral perfection? Like, what what is he meaning here? Well, it's helped explain in verse two. So as to live for the rest of our time in the flesh that is in this body, not for human passions, but for the will of God. What Peter is saying here is that when we suffer in the flesh, what it means is we've ceased to allow sin to have dominion over us. When we consciously choose and say, hey, there's two options. I could live in sin or I could suffer for doing what's right and I'm going to choose to suffer. He says, when as Christians, we choose to follow Jesus through suffering, sin no longer has dominion and power and rule over our lives. See, this choice is coming to all of us. And maybe you're not in a season right now where you're faced with this, but if we're not, there will be in our lives times where we will have to decide if we will live in sin or live in obedience and as a result of that, suffer for it. See, knowing this choice is coming, we need to decide in advance what our response will be. See, Christianity is not just this thing like pray a prayer, you get into heaven one day, live the rest of your life however you want. Christianity is believing what Jesus has done for us now transforms our life as a full commitment to following him and all that he has for us, which often includes painful and hard circumstances as a result of following after Jesus. And so we need to decide that we will honor him, even if it means pain and suffering in our lives. A few years ago, I, uh, I did a little um, a diet, a health eating thing called the Whole30. It was really popular a few years ago. Basically, the idea of the diet is take all the foods that you really enjoy and don't eat them. No, I mean, like, not, not quite. But, but the, basic, the basic summary was anything that has added sugar, you can't eat just for 30 days, right? Anyone can do anything for a month, right? So, so anything with any processed or added sugar. So you're just eating a lot of, like, meats 
and eggs and vegetables for a month, which is good eating, which for most of it, it wasn't hard for me. I don't eat a lot of potato chips or things like that. I'm like, oh, this, this is easy. There was one challenging thing, though. Chocolate. I love chocolate. Chocolate ice cream, chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, chocolate brownies, chocolate cake. Yeah, I'll have it. I'm game. I love chocolate. Chocolate also has sugar, right? So it's okay. For a month, none. And, and kind of, you, I started off in like the first like three days. If you've ever cut all sugar out of your life, you have like this headache. You're like, this probably isn't good what I'm doing to my body if this is how it responds when I stop eating something. And, and then you kind of get into a groove. We're like, all right, you kind of get this energy. Like, this is good. This is good, right? And I've decided, all right, this is what I'm going to do for this month. I was about three weeks into it. And I was, I was at work, the church I worked at previously, and I was sitting in my office when I heard kind of a knock on the door and the door opened. And before I could even turn around and look at who it was, the smell of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies went flooding into my office. I turned around and there was my boss at the time, my executive pastor there, and he walked right up to me with this box of warm chocolate chip cookies. And was like, you want one? Everything in me was like, yes. Yes, I do. But because I had already decided beforehand what my response will be, I was able to be like, first, I hate you. Why are you here? Secondly, no, no, I'm not. And yes, it was great suffering for Jesus, it felt like, (laughs) in the moment. But the only way I could make that decision is I had chosen in advance what my response would be. See, there comes a time in our life where we will be faced with decisions. Will we honor God and perhaps inflict pain and suffering on our lives because of it, or will we choose to live in sin? And we need to equip ourselves now to live this way, to honor God even with. And one of the ways to do this, as Peter encourages us, is by thinking and meditating and knowing who Jesus is. Learning who Jesus is, how he lived his life, helps us to be able to do the same. See, if you think of someone who endured suffering rather than choosing to walk outside the will of God, the prime example is Jesus, right? Going to the cross was not a physically pleasant experience, yet he chose to undergo suffering for us because that was the will of God. And we should look to him and to find joy and encouragement in finding that will of God and suffering for it, even if it comes to that. The author of Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, that's Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. See, when we grow weary of doing good, even in the face, and especially in the face of, man, this is gonna bring more pain in my life if I continue to follow Jesus. This just seems like it's gonna lead to more hardship. When we find ourselves in those moments, what we need to do is consider Jesus to fix our eyes on him, to know Jesus so well, to study his life, to know it, and that will give us the ability to live it out through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. So we look to Jesus as this example of choosing to suffer for doing what's right rather than choosing to sin. The second way we shift our mindset is found starting in verse three. It says this, for the time 
that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they may live in the spirit the way God does. The second way to shift our mindset is to remember that we will all be judged. To remember that all of humanity, both believers and unbelievers, will be judged before God. Both the living and the dead, believers and unbelievers, will be judged by God. He says in verse 3 that the time has passed. Remember, these are almost all exclusively adult converts to Christianity. He's saying, hey, you used to live one way. You used to participate and lead the way in all these activities, but the gospel has so radically transformed your life that now you live differently. And the, the time has come. You've spent your life doing that. Now it's time to live differently. And he says, as the Gentiles do, he's not meaning here as in an ethnic divide, like ethnic Jews live one way and ethnic Gentiles live another way. Most of his audience is most likely Gentile in origin, but he's using it as those outside the realm of God live this way. And he uses these expressions, these, these characteristics. This is by no means an exhaustive list of sins, but these are kind of sins to their fullest expression of what could pleasure look like from an earthly perspective taken to the extreme, right? These passions, drunkenness, orgies. He's like, what does man look for? And take it to the extreme to bring joy. That's what you used to participate in. And when you say no, the people around you are surprised. They're surprised at how you live your life. Christian living will stand out in an unbelieving world. And because of the way that they live their lives, he warns them in verse four that you will be maligned. You will be looked down. You'll be misspoken and mistreated. See, sometimes we experience suffering and hardship in our life because we're trying to speak out for Jesus in a non-Christian world. Right? And there's, that's certainly a good thing to do. And we want to represent Jesus where he's placed us. But there are times we're literally just living for Jesus, being gracious and being gentle as best we can, that we will be maligned simply because God calls you to a different standard than the standard of this world. Notice it's not like, hey, when people do this and invite you and you say to them, no, you sinners, you need to stop doing that, then they'll make fun of you. Notice there's nothing disrespectful from these believers towards these non-believers, but simply by the way we live our lives, sometimes we will be mistreated because our lives should look so differently from that of an unbelieving world. And in light of this being maligned and looked down upon simply for following Jesus, he reminds us in verse five, they too will give an account to him, that is God, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. It says, that's why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. Now, that looks confusing at first. It's like, well, what is he talking about? Like, is, like, do they go to funerals and preach the gospel out in, like, the, the, the lots where people are dead? Or is there, like, some second chance at what? What does he mean by the gospel was preached to those who are dead? Well, some translations help us kind of clarify what, what he's meaning here. It says that the gospel is preached to those who are now dead. What he's saying when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead is saying this, the gospel doesn't just change your life in the present, but it changes it for all of eternity. And so when the gospel comes and you have this right standing before God, it changes your life now. And guess what? When you die, you still stand in right standing before 
God. And it's for that reason the gospel has impacted not just in this world, but spreads for all of eternity, that it's our salvation both in this life, but also after this life. And he reminds them that, that they too, verse five, they will give an account to him who judges the living and the dead. Hebrews 9 says that it's appointed to man to die once and then face judgment. See, one of the challenges of living for Jesus now in this world is it can sometimes look as those who don't live for Jesus, who in fact rebel against him and live opposite of what he would have for us, are not just the same, but sometimes it's like, man, their lives look better off than ours. They sometimes look, right? It would be one thing if it's like all the Christians were the ones who made all the money, had all the good marriages, had the happy families. And if you weren't a Christian, your life was automatically a train wreck, right? It'd be really easy. Be like, oh, I see why this thing's working. Thank you, God. But sometimes wicked people make a lot of money and get promotions and have a lot of success in life and they don't honor God at all. And it can be really hard sometimes living in this world where we see this dichotomy. This is what God's called me to do. But man, sometimes people who don't live this way look better off from my perspective. This is a cry constantly of people living in a world that doesn't honor God. We sense this this imbalance in our lives. The prophet Jeremiah said this in Jeremiah 12. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the treacherous thrive? The psalmist struggles with this, especially in Psalm 10 and Psalm 73. Like, why why are the wicked people not having bad things done? Good things happen to wicked people sometimes. What's going on? See, we struggle sometimes from from our perspective. There's a double standard of accountability and justice, right? We've always, from an early age, we sense this struggle, man. If, If someone's held to one standard and someone to another one, it just doesn't seem right. You know, some of you think back to your childhood, and the way that your parents disciplined, the way your parents treated you, and then your youngest sibling came along. And you were like, hold up, mom and dad. Like, this kid gets to do whatever they want to do. It was totally different rules with me. Well, the reason is, as a youngest child, it's because we're better than the rest of you. So I'm sorry. <laughs> Just kidding. Right? But we, we sense that. Like, if you were like, well, how come they have a different standard than I have? Right? Or maybe you're at work and you, you're always on time to me. You're on time to everything and you're late like one time and your boss lays into you and you're sitting right next to the person who's late every single day for everything and no one ever says anything to them. You're like, um, hello, please, like not just me. Like you, it, we have this sense of why, why? There's, there needs to be accountability. And this passage reminds us that just because it may look in this world like there's not, Just because there's not bad circumstances happening to those who don't follow God doesn't mean that they will not be held accountable to God in the future. See, don't fall into the trap that there is no accountability for how we live our lives here. And for believers, this is a source of hope and encouragement to us in hardship, knowing that everyone will stand before God, the living and the dead, the righteous and the unrighteous. And if you're here and you're not following Jesus this morning, don't think that just because maybe your life's not falling apart, because you've gotten promotions or because things are going well, don't think that someday you will not be judged, that God will not judge you for how you live your life. We are all accountable for our lives. Those who live in sin and continue in sin will be judged by God one day for their sin. Those who believe in Jesus will one day be judged by God for Jesus's sin, which is none. 
Because we're not any better than those, but what we've done is we've placed our faith in Jesus and he's made us this right relationship with God. And that's the hope that we have in the face of judgment. It's not our own moral perfectionism or some goodness within us. Our hope is Jesus and Jesus alone. And all of us will stand before God and be accountable for how we've lived this life. Do we depend on ourselves, but we continued in sin or have we trusted in Jesus? And this is a source of encouragement to us in the face of this world that doesn't seem to work the way we want when we experience hardship for following God. The third way that we can shift our mindset is found in the last four verses here, starting at verse seven. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins showing hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The third way to have this shift in mindset and suffering is that we as Christians need to live in light of eternity. As Christians, God calls us to live in light of eternity, not just today, but for all of eternity. He starts verse seven, the end of all things is at hand. Some translations, the end of all things is near. Now, end here is an interesting word in, in the New Testament. It not only can mean end as in the measurement of time, that's how we normally think of the end, but this word also can mean the completion or the goal of all things is at hand. So by Peter saying this, he's not just meaning that physically the end is coming, but the goal of all things being reconciled to God through Jesus is coming soon. Now, but we look at this from our perspective, right? And we're like, um, was Peter wrong? Because this was like 2,000 years ago, right? And like, if you call up someone, you're like, hey, I'm going to stop by your house soon. You don't mean in 2,000 years you're going to swing over, right? So it's like, what, what does Peter mean here when he's saying like, it's, it's near, it's at hand, like it still hasn't happened. It's 2,000 years away or ago that he said this. What, what he's saying here is that we are now living in the final phase of God's redemption plan for the world. Peter's looking at it from a whole perspective of what God has done and where after Jesus believers now find ourselves. See, what he's looking at is he's saying, listen, God created the world. The first thing, creation happened. And everyone was in perfect relationship with God and perfect relationship with each other. But then sin entered the world. Man fell and we were discontinued. Our relationship with God and with others was disrupted and marred because of the sin in our lives. And most of the Old Testament scripture is this period of anticipation where God is saying something is coming. Someone is coming. The Messiah will come and make this right again between you and God and between you and others. And it's this period of anticipation and waiting. And then Jesus comes. He dies on the cross. He rises from the dead. He restores us into relationship with God. But then we still look forward to this final period after redemption of restoration, of Jesus coming once again as he has promised and making all things right, back to how there was at the original of creation, perfect relationship with God, no sin, no evil in the world. And what Peter is saying is, look, when you look at all that has come, the next thing is Jesus coming back. That's the next phase. 
And so that's why he says it's, it's near. He's not looking to be like, oh, he's got to come again. No, it, it's when Jesus comes back, all things will be reconciled to him. And he, he promotes this urgency of living in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back. So what does it look like to live in light of eternity? If you've gone to church, that's not like a new phrase, right? Like to remember that Jesus is coming back, to live in light of eternity. Well, Peter gives us, I think, three helpful categories for what this kind of living looks like in our lives, or this eternal mindset. First, it's this thoughtful living that's evidenced in our lives in prayer. He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. That doesn't mean just not drunk, although it certainly does include that, but this rightful thinking about the world for the sake of your prayers. What Peter is saying is if you see the world and the world that we live in, if you see this and it doesn't drive you to prayer, your mind has not been transformed enough by Jesus to realize the world we're living in. If, if we look out, we're not like, I need to pray of how I can live and my neighbors, my friends, my family need prayer for how to live for God in this world, then we are not thinking like how Peter, like how God would have us think. See, we, we need to be self-controlled and sober-minded. You've heard the phrase before, desperate times call for desperate measures. And see, the desperation of a Christian can be measured in your prayer life. The desperation of our, our need for God, of our need for him in our world, is measured in our practice of prayer. And for a lot of us at times, we just depend on ourselves a lot. Like, and it's seen in how little and what we pray about. It's very small. It's very little. It's, it's very, rem- like, rote prayers. But, but if we actually get a sense for where God has placed us in the world, what it looks like to live for him, the challenge it is, but also the opportunity, it will drive us to our knees in prayer. And so living in light of eternity is a life that is filled with prayer throughout our lives. The second is it's a life filled with love. Love that is seen in forgiveness for others and hospitality for others. It says, verse eight, above all, love one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. This is language of of forgiveness. That that love is that which allows us to forgive one another and, and live life in relationship with one another. Not that it earns forgiveness, but love enables forgiveness. Then he focused specifically in verse nine on hospitality. Show hospitality to one another as a a physical, tangible expression of love. See, this was a very tangible thing for them in their time. Remember, there's no infrastructure of hotels and Airbnb. So very Mel be like, you need to open up your home and use that as an opportunity to bless others. It also very likely could be there's no church buildings at this time. So it's like, hey, you need to practice hospitality by hosting believers, by church gatherings in your place. But this love for one another is seen in the body of Christ in recognition that eternity is coming. Jesus is coming soon. It drives us to love one another. The The third way that we reflect this eternal mindset, verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. See, this third way of an eternal mindset is that that we serve others from our giftedness. We serve others from what God has gifted us. What Peter is referring to here is what what is often called spiritual gifts. And get this, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, at the very moment you did that, the Bible says that you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit meaning God now is with you wherever you go. You are indwelt with him. He doesn't leave. He is, it takes a permanent residence. But not only that, but he gives you, each and every believer, unique spiritual gifts. 
And these gifts are not meant for you to be better parents or to advance your career, but these gifts are given for one reason, to bless others within the body of Christ, to bless the church, where spiritual gifts are to be exercised. Now, he uses here two examples of spiritual gifts, that of of speaking the will of God and that of serving one another. But Peter's not trying to give an exhaustive list here. Scripture talks about gifts such as encouragement, mercy, discernment, faith, giving, evangelism, administration, wisdom, hospitality, teaching, and the list could go on and on and on. But he's saying, it doesn't matter how God's gifted you. What matters is, are you using your gifts to serve one another as a good steward of what God has given you. See, we are not living with an eternal mindset if we are not active in serving others within the body of Christ. We're not living with an eternal mindset if we are not using our spiritual gifts to bless the people that God has placed around us. We are not living in light of the end. See, I've been a pastor now for over 14 years. And the most common excuse when you ask someone to lean in to serve, by far the most common excuse, I'm too busy. And I just want to like graciously say to you, well, you're not too busy. Your priorities are wrong. You're living in light of today. You're not living in light of eternity. If you think your life is too filled with stuff to invest in the only thing that lasts beyond this life, you're not too busy. You've just placed your priorities in all the wrong things. And maybe you need to move some stuff around in your life to get to the point where you're free to serve. But no one is too busy that they can't invest in the only thing that will last for eternity. And if you are, it's because you're not thinking of eternal values. You're just thinking of the here and now. He says that when we catch this vision that God is coming back soon, it motivates us to find our gifting and to use our gifting within the body of Christ. So the question for us is, are we living in light of eternity? Are we living as if the end of all things is near and at hand? Several years ago, I heard a sermon illustration about this very point um, from a pastor, Francis Chan, who's a well-known pastor. And so I'm just going to steal his, his illustration because, ooh. I didn't mean to do that. I'm just going to steal his illustration because it was far better than anything I could think of. So he uses the illustration of a rope, all right? And he says, pretend this rope is a timeline. It has a beginning, the day you were born, and it extends, you can see the end, but pretend you can't, that it extends forever into eternity. Because every single person, while we have a beginning, we are eternal beings. Every single one of us, we will live for eternity. And as followers of Jesus, we're, we're told we will be in heaven, we will be with God for eternity. And he uses, there's this rope here, right? Seeing our timeline. And he says, the the piece of duct tape, that's your life. And so much of our time is worried on just this, on stuff that has no impact for all of that that will go on forever, right? And we're so consumed with work, with this little problem here. We're so consumed with sports. We're so consumed with all of these little things, with social media taking all of our time. We're so consumed with all of these little things that hardly any of our life sometimes is focused on what matters for eternity. And so when you take an audit of your own life, how much of it is purely focused on things that are so small in comparison with the fact that you will be with God forever? See, one of the ways that we endure suffering in this world is we shift our mindset and we realize how short our life is, but how long eternity with God is. And that's what can enable and empower us to live for Jesus, even in the midst of pain and suffering in our worlds. 
the famous American preacher from hundreds of years ago, Jonathan Edwards, had a saying. It's very unique, but it sticks in my mind. He, he had this prayer. He said, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Kind of unique. But his idea was this. It is so easy for us to wake up and to just focus on today. To be, to be mastered by what has to be done today, that we can live our lives for days, for months, for years at a time, giving no thought to the fact that Jesus is coming again soon. And so much of what consumes our mind, our thoughts, our energy, our attention has no eternal impact. But we need to grasp that the end of all things is at hand. Jesus is coming back soon. And that's motivation for us when we experience suffering and hardship to continue to pursue after Jesus. And it's motivation for us to arrange our priorities so that all of our time and energy and attention is not focused on just a few short years that will soon dissipate, but to spend our time, our energy, our lives on what matters for eternity. God, we thank you that you have called us and we have been saved by Jesus because he has suffered for us. And he has redeemed us through the cross and the resurrection. God, I pray that you would empower us as we look to Jesus' example to live for you in this world, to, if the need be, to choose to follow you rather than to live in sin. God, it is so easy for us to be captive to the moment, to lose sight of eternity. So would our eyes be open to how brief this time is that you've given us? And may we be wise stewards of the gifts that you've given us. God, help us to live meaningful lives, not just for now, but lives that matter and have meaning for all of eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.